The U.S. and Germany hope new military equipment can help Ukraine fight the Russian invasion, but there are more reports of missile strikes this morning. It's Thursday, January 26th. This is WBMR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, why economists think we'll see slow growth and high mortgage rates last through 2023. It will be a difficult year. Sometime in 24 would be our anticipation that you'd start to see the pickup. Also, a Virginia school superintendent is ousted after supposedly ignoring warnings before a six-year-old shot a teacher. And this hour, a South Boston dumpling factory and restaurant wants to let customers see how those dumplings get made. Wouldn't it be cool if people could see inside a dumpling factory? So for us, having this kind of interactive element really aligned with kind of how we think about our work. Rain tapers off this morning. Temperatures fall to the 30s by this afternoon. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden will deliver a major speech about the U.S. economy today. This comes as the Commerce Department is poised to issue its report on the nation's GDP at the end of last year. Despite inflation, analysts suggest the report may show healthy U.S. economic growth. Officials from aircraft maker Boeing will be in federal court in Texas today to face a criminal fraud charge. It's related to the deadly crashes of two 737 MAX airplanes in 2018 and 2019. As NPR's David Shaper reports, relatives of some of those killed will be heard in court too. The families say a deferred prosecution agreement reached two years ago between Boeing and the Department of Justice violated their rights under the Crime Victims' Rights Act. And last fall, a federal judge agreed. Last week, the judge ordered Boeing to be publicly arraigned on a felony charge of conspiracy to commit fraud. The company is accused of misleading regulators by concealing safety flaws in an automated flight control system that was partly to blame for the crashes. In a court filing, the relatives of some of the 346 people killed killed, say Boeing committed the deadliest corporate crime in U.S. history. They want the judge to appoint an independent monitor to oversee the company's compliance with new safety protocols. David Shaper, NPR News. Vice President Harris visited Monterey Park, California to console families of the victims from last weekend's mass shooting. NPR's Adrian Florido reports 11 people were killed. Harris placed a bouquet of white and yellow flowers at the memorial that's grown outside the Star Ballroom Dance Studio, and she called for stricter gun laws. California has been courageous as a leader on the issue of smart gun safety laws. But we also need Congress to act. She also visited families of the dead, all of whom were of Asian descent, and met with first responders. This week, California Senator Dianne Feinstein introduced a new assault weapons ban, though it does not have the Republican support it needs to become law. Adrian Florido, NPR News, Monterey Park, California. The Memphis Police Department is going to release a video that shows the police beating of a black motorist this month. Tyree Nichols died later in a hospital. An autopsy commissioned by his family says the cause of death was from bleeding caused by a severe beating. Memphis Police Chief Sarah Davis says she expects the community to protest peacefully when the video is disclosed. I expect you to feel what the Nichols family feels. I expect you to feel outrage in the disregard of basic human rights. As our police officers have taken an oath, to do the opposite of what transpired on the video. Five Memphis police officers and two Memphis Fire Department employees have been fired in connection with the beating. Federal prosecutors are also investigating. This is NPR. 
Russia has fired a fresh wave of missiles and self-exploding drones into Ukraine. At least one person has been killed. Ukraine says it shot down many incoming Russian projectiles. The Russian attacks come a day after the U.S. and Germany announced they would send heavy battle tanks to Ukraine to help defend itself. Officials in North Korea's capital, Pyongyang, have imposed a five-day lockdown to stop the spread of an unspecified respiratory illness. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports from Seoul, North Korea admitted its first COVID outbreak last year, but declared victory over it last August. The Russian embassy posted on its Facebook page a notice from health authorities to diplomatic missions in Pyongyang dated Tuesday. It said that diplomats are recommended to stay in their embassies and residences, take their temperatures, and report them to authorities four times a day. The notice called it a special anti-epidemic period lasting from Wednesday until Sunday. The news was also reported by the website NK News, which added that residents had rushed to stores and pharmacies to stock up on essentials ahead of the lockdown. North Korean state media have called for vigilance in fighting epidemics, but made no mention of COVID or the lockdown. Anthony Kuhn in PR News, Seoul. NASA says a small asteroid that's about the size of a box truck is going to fly by Earth tonight. It will zip over the southern tip of South America, about 2,200 miles above the Earth's surface. NASA says there's no risk of the asteroid hitting the planet, but the asteroid is making one of the closest approaches to our planet ever recorded. I'm Corva Coleman. NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu plans to overhaul the city's development process and create more affordable housing. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, Wu laid out a slate of new policies in her first State of the City speech last night. Michelle Wu promised to abolish the Boston Planning and Development Agency when she ran for mayor in 2021. The massive agency governs most new construction in the city. In her speech last night, Wu said it's time to start dismantling the BPDA and move its functions to other offices. Over the last decade, Boston saw the largest building boom in generations, cranes in the sky and jobs on the ground. But that growth wasn't harnessed for the benefit of all our communities. Wu also said she'd ban fossil fuels in new city buildings and offer 150 vacant lots to developers to build affordable housing. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Almost every New England state is seeing record warm temperatures as part of a larger trend in the region driven by climate change. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration says Connecticut, Maine, and New Hampshire recorded their 10th warmest years last year. Rhode Island and Massachusetts also set heat records. Karen Gleason with NOAA ties the temperatures to atmospheric patterns and coastal waters. If you have warmer waters off the coast and you have predominantly southerly flow or winds coming from the south, both of those seem to be happening a little bit more frequently in the northeast, and it is leading to a higher trend in that warming. Research shows that all the New England states have warmed considerably over the last century, with the greatest warming happening during winter. Federal prosecutors are investigating a cover-up of MBTA police misconduct. They're focusing on a 2021 incident where an off-duty officer pulled his gun on another driver. Transit police officials had pushed for the case to be tried, but Suffolk DA Kevin Hayden decided against that, causing conflict with the department. Federal officials tell the Boston Globe they're looking into whether the case was correctly handled by the DA's office. 
State wildlife officials want everyone to know that coyotes are living everywhere in Massachusetts, and they say we have to learn to live with them and learn how to avoid them. Dave Waddles is a biologist at the Massachusetts Division of Fisheries and Wildlife. He says coyotes look for food, and your trash is one source, but there are others. People feeding pets outside, people feeding stray cats, people intentionally feeding wildlife, bird feeders. All those things are free meals that attract coyotes to our yards, to our neighborhoods. Um, And it also supplements their natural diet, so it allows them to exist in higher densities in these places. The city of Malden is holding a public presentation on coyote behavior this evening. And in the hunt, the town is bringing in hunters to reduce its coyote population. It's 7.08. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Type Coach, facilitating team workshops to build greater trust and collaboration through the lens of navigating personality type differences. Learn more at typecoach.com. The Celtics will be at the Garden tonight to play the New York Knicks. The Bruins are on the road to skate with the Tampa Bay Lightning. The rain should move out later this morning. As it does, temperatures are going to fall. It'll only be in the upper 30s by the evening commute. Partly cloudy overnight with temperatures in the 20s, mostly sunny tomorrow, and in the upper 30s, it should be dry for the weekend. It's 48 degrees in Boston at 709. WBUR supporters include the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation. For more than 95 years, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at Mott.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Fadel. Russia used missiles to attack Ukraine again this morning. Ukrainian officials say warplanes damaged major infrastructure and at least one person was killed in the Odessa region. The attack during rush hour in Ukraine came the morning after the U.S. and Germany promised dozens of battle tanks to help Ukraine fight the Russian invasion. Germany says it will send leopards and the U.S. will deliver Abrams tanks as National Security Council spokesman. John Kirby told NPR's Mary Louise Kelly on All Things Considered. This decision was really the culmination of weeks of diplomatic conversations about how do we help Ukraine in the fight that we expect them to be in when the winter fades and spring and summer months come. How effective will those tanks be? Let's ask for a former U.S. ambassador to NATO and retired Army Lieutenant General Douglas Lute. Good morning, Ambassador. Good morning. So will these tanks make a huge difference in this war? Well, the tanks will tip the uh, balance tactically, that is on the battlefield, over time. Uh, Not immediately, but perhaps in the months ahead. Uh, But what they really do, the contribution of the American tanks, those 30 American tanks unlock the contributions of Germany, Poland, and other NATO allies. So in a way, the 30 tanks are a down payment for much bigger contributions Mm. by others. So it gives cover for Poland and Germany and others to provide the military aid that they're providing. It does just that. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a big step for Ukraine's allies. Ukraine's been begging for these tanks for months, and it will be more months before they're deployed. Why are the U.S. and Ukraine's European allies going ahead now? Well, I think uh, several things. First of all, the Ukrainians have proven themselves on the battlefield Mm -hmm. over the last year, uh, capable of pressing back against the Russians, not only defending their territory, but actually recovering ground occupied by the Russians. And now they've reached a point where they're up against the hardest parts of the Russian defense on Ukraine, on Ukrainian territory. So in order to to deal with those defenses, 
Um, Ukraine has to develop a an offensive capability built around what in the United States Army we call a combined arms team. Hmm. And that's a team that puts together four ingredients, tanks, infantry, artillery, and engineers. And so the tanks are a key element of, the, of this team. Are they worth, though, the possible Russian reaction? Already this morning, we see these attacks in response, possibly. Well, remember that these attacks on uh, on Ukrainian civilian infrastructure have been taking place for months True. before tanks were even in the in the conversation. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we should be self-deterred uh, by Russian rhetoric. Look, Russia is responsible for the war in Ukraine and the United States and the 50-some countries that yeah. are joining the United States to push back and to support Ukraine are all acting in accordance with the UN Charter. Now, Ukraine says its missile defense systems were able to shoot down most of the missiles that Russia fired this morning. But since the beginning of the war, Ukrainians have consistently said the danger is in the sky and they want things. uh, They have a long wish list, including fighter jets. Will NATO send even more military equipment and possibly consider those jets? I think providing tanks is is the next logical step. Tanks were at the top of the Ukrainian request list, but just below tanks are fighter aircraft. Mm -hmm. And I suspect the conversations are going on now uh, inside the United States government, but also among NATO allies about taking the next step, which could well involve uh, high performance aircraft. Now, we, we spoke about this a little bit, but Moscow warned that sending these tanks is, quote, extremely dangerous. What do you take that to mean? Well, they're intended, of course, to be dangerous to the Russian occupiers. Um, But I don't think that that there's a rhetoric uh, that we should uh, abide by here. Russia has repeatedly threatened uh, escalation and has been unable or unwilling to do so. Uh, The reality is they still occupy sovereign Ukrainian territory. Ambassador Douglas Liu, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. We have new allegations now in the story of a first grader accused of shooting a teacher in Newport News, Virginia. An attorney for that teacher says three different teachers warned school administrators that the six-year-old was armed. Last night, the school board fired the district's top official. Here's Ryan Murphy from our member station, WHRO. Abby Zorner was teaching her first grade class at Richneck Elementary School in Newport News when one of her students stood up, pointed a handgun, and fired. Zwerner was shot in the hand and chest, but still ushered her other students out of the classroom and away from harm. Attorney Diane Toscano represents Zwerner. She says Zwerner and two other teachers warned school leaders about the student on the day of the shooting. They'd heard threats he'd made against other students and were told he had a weapon. Toscano said a teacher searched the child's backpack and didn't find a gun. She told administrators she believed he'd put it in his pocket and went to recess. The administrator downplayed the report from the teacher and the possibility of a gun, saying, and I quote, well, he has little pockets. Another staff member asked the administrator for permission to search the boy. Toscano said the response was hold off because the school day was almost over. Zwerner was shot before classes got out. Now she's preparing to sue the school district. This tragedy was entirely preventable if the school administrators responsible for school safety had done their part and taken action when they had knowledge of imminent danger. In the weeks since the shooting, teachers in Newport News have said they don't feel safe at school or backed up by their administrators. At a recent school board meeting, current and former staff spoke for hours. They say administrators are not addressing discipline issues and violence, in part over concerns about accreditation. Here's Newport News teacher Nicole Cook. 
teachers, students, and other staff members are being hurt. Every day they're hit, they're bitten, they're beaten, and they're allowed to stay so that our numbers look good. Last night, the school board fired Superintendent George Parker. As for the six-year-old who allegedly pulled the trigger, his future is uncertain. He's been evaluated by child psychologists. It's unclear where he is now or what's happening to him. Officials have given no updates on his status. It's unlikely for a child this young to be charged. Police are looking into how the boy got the gun, which was legally owned by his mother. The boy's family released a statement last week saying the weapon had been stored safely. For NPR News, I'm Ryan Murphy in Newport News, Virginia. The Supreme Court is weighing a major case that could radically reshape democracy in the U.S. It involves a once fringe legal theory about federal elections. And many voting rights experts warn that the justice's decision, expected later this year, could upend election laws across the country. NPR's Hansi Lo Wong has more. It's called the Independent State Legislature, or ISL, theory. And it claims the U.S. Constitution gives state lawmakers a special power to determine how federal elections are run. Things like how congressional districts are redrawn and how voters can cast their ballots. According to the theory, that power is independent of state constitutions and state courts. This is a proposal that gets rid of the normal checks and balances on the way um, big governmental decisions are made in this country. U.S. Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan warned in December during oral arguments for this North Carolina redistricting case that this is a theory with big consequences. And you might think that it gets rid of all those checks and balances at exactly the time when they are needed most. We're living in a moment in which these election rules really do matter with respect to turnout and control of Congress. And many state legislators are willing to do whatever it is that they can. Guy Charles, an election law professor at Harvard Law School, says if the Supreme Court's ruling supports some version of the ISL theory, it could embolden state lawmakers who are focused on getting more power for their political party. Whatever rules the court might set, it can expect that in many states and in many state legislatures, the boundaries are going to be pushed. What that pushing might look like basically depends on who the U.S. Supreme Court says should have the final word on how federal elections are conducted, a state's lawmakers or its state's Supreme Court. During oral arguments, most of the justices sounded skeptical of fully adopting the ISL theory and giving the final word to state lawmakers. But some did ask about setting some kind of middle of the road ruling. I think Chief Justice Roberts in particular asked a lot of questions about what is the limit? What does it look like? How do we know when the state court has gone too far? That was Stuart Nafee, an attorney with the Legal Defense Fund, which advocates for voting rights and opposes the ISL theory. Nafee points out historically, for this kind of election case, the U.S. Supreme Court has deferred to state courts. And the other thing that makes this complicated is... There will be different views on when a state court has gone too far, and that is essentially the big problem with the the middle-of-the-road approach. It doesn't really resolve anything. Instead, it could open the door to more lawsuits that ultimately ask the U.S. Supreme Court to review more state court rulings about federal elections. And that kind of legal mess could destabilize upcoming elections, including next year's presidential race. Anlin Carney of Represent Us, an anti-corruption group that's spoken out against the ISL theory, says there's also a risk to any effort to reform federal elections through a ballot measure passed by voters. 
it's pretty frequent that state Supreme Courts will weigh in on this. And then the U.S. Supreme Court could be asked to weigh in on ballot measures about things like independent redistricting commissions, automatic voter registration, expanded access to vote by mail. Those are the kinds of things that are subject to new powers that the state legislators could have. And with some version of the ISL theory, those new powers could allow state lawmakers to ignore key protections voters have under state constitutions. State constitutions explicitly protect the right to vote. Many of them explicitly provide for things like free and fair elections. Kate Shaw is a professor at the Cordozo School of Law at Yeshiva University. These are all principles that are not explicit in the federal constitution, but are in many or all state constitutions. And Shaw says in this legal fight over the ISL theory, a U.S. Supreme Court ruling that sides with state lawmakers and second guesses how state courts have enforced those voting protections would be a real loss for democracy. Anzi Luong, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a well-known Boston-area restaurant makes a comeback and brings transparency to the process of making dumplings. It's 721. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CB Team in Lexington, helping all ages overcome anxiety and OCD with a mix of science and compassion. CBTeam.org. I'm Peter O'Dowd. Six months ago, eastern Kentucky was reeling after a series of rainstorms caused deadly flooding. Folks have been coming to pick up supplies, and most of all, they seem like they want to tell us their stories. They need to be and heard. so we've cried. We've cried with them. An update next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. There's a chance of rain for another hour or so. Then some high winds will clear the clouds out. By afternoon, we'll have a partly sunny day. While that happens, temperatures are going to fall from the upper 40s, where we are right now, to the upper 30s by about 5 p.m. Tonight, partly cloudy and a low in the upper 20s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny Friday with a high only in the upper 30s. Right now, it's 47 degrees in Boston at 722. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Sony Pictures Classics presenting Living. A new film directed by Oliver Hermanus, starring Bill Nye as a man who tries to turn his ordinary life into something wonderful, now playing select cities. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. And from Charles Schwab dedicated to serving clients with 24-7 live support. The people at Schwab are committed to helping clients on their investing journey. Learn more at schwab.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station.
This is WPWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The pandemic forced scores of Boston-area restaurants to shut down. That list included Chef Irene Lee's May May Restaurant in Brookline. Now the James Beard Award winner and a devoted team of collaborators have a new 4,000-square-foot dumpling factory and cafe in South Boston. As WPWAR's Andrea Shea reports, transparency and, quote, world dumpling domination are on the menu. May May co-founder and co-owner Irene Lee always loved watching the show How It's Made that takes viewers behind the scenes in different industries. So when she and her team started strategizing a reboot of the business she started a decade ago, they ran with a novel idea. Wouldn't it be cool if people could see inside a dumpling factory? So for us, having this kind of interactive element where the guests really get a sense of the people working and the process, that really aligned with kind of how we think about our work at Maymay. Their new Maymay Dumpling Factory and Cafe in South Boston is all about transparency. It's kind of like a modern brewery um, where you go, you can take a tour, you can see how the stuff is being made, then you get to hang out in the tap room or in our dining room, as the case may be. You can sample the product and you can also buy some to take home with you to enjoy later. A delicious-looking wall mural in the dining room depicts the dumpling life cycle from farm to table. Customers can also peer through a huge glass window into the production area, where staff members mix dough and fillings made mostly with local produce and responsibly raised meat. A hulking new machine helps speed things up. We average somewhere between 500 to 1,000 dumplings an hour when we're in production. This really kind of opens up a whole new level of volume for us. We were squeezing this process out of our old location, and so this space is really designed to allow us to pump out dumplings. Turns out Lee never intended to open a dumpling factory, but the original May May in Brookline, which she and her siblings started as a food truck in 2012, went into a tailspin because of the pandemic. We were pivoting every which way, spinning around in circles, um, doing groceries, um, doing takeout, doing family meals. When a customer suggested they try selling their dumplings at farmer's markets. I was the one who poo-pooed the idea. I was like, we don't need to go to a farmer's market. Like, that's for food startups, and we're not a startup, we're a restaurant. And, you know, my, my partners looked at me and sort of said, like, it's COVID. We're all startups again. The dumplings were a hit and expanded to about 20 farmers markets across Massachusetts. But Lee had no idea how to manufacture mass quantities of dumplings. Luckily, her two managing partners, who have MBAs from Babson College, did. I admitted up front that I didn't want to be the one who was in charge of it. And so they have really brought a level of sophistication and intention to this plan that the old May May frankly never had. Manufacturing guru Annie Campbell jokes that their goal is world dumpling domination. I think for us, it's really being able to see the dumplings um, on grocery store shelves coast to coast. May May's other managing partner, Alyssa Lee, says it's also about carrying on Irene Lee's pioneering business practices, which earned her the James Beard Award for leadership last year. She is a vision setter, and that's why I think she's attracted so many great people to work with her for her. And a lot of us here, too, have been able to kind of grasp on 
on this better vision that she has for the food industry. Before joining Maymay, Campbell was inspired by Lee's open book management, which is opening up their books and saying, like, this is the nitty gritty and the ugly, you know, truth of, of what it takes to run a restaurant and to teach the whole staff so that they understood what was really happening. That really spoke to me as the kind of business that I wanted to be involved in. This alarm is letting production manager Wei Wu know 800 steamed dumplings are ready. She read all about Irene Lee's advocacy, including her fight against food waste, and applied to work at Maymay. I don't like food waste, you know, and I think, you know, with myself working in the food industry, you know, I can do a little my part to uh, help that. I, you know, have a vision of a restaurant industry that is more independent, more diverse, more equitable, more accessible than it is right now. And I'm hopeful that we can push towards that future. Irene Lee will continue doing that beyond May May's walls with PrepShift, her new tech-based consulting company. She wants to pay it forward by helping other restaurants create their own equitable and sustainable business models. To focus on this next chapter, Lee is backing away from daily operations at the dumpling factory, but she knows May May is in good hands. It's exciting to see a brand that I've loved and sort of stewarded for so many years um, evolve into something else. The only thing that I hope stays the same is that we can be a business that people are proud to work for and proud to support. Lee believes dumplings make the world go round, and she just wants people to eat more of them. To spread even more dumpling love, May May will also host dumpling-making classes. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. This is 9.9 WPMR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up here on Morning Edition, the U.S. economy grew at a healthy clip in the last months of 2022, but some experts say that may change this year. And Israel's new government has moved to weaken the country's courts, prompting unprecedented levels of protest. It's 7.29. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. At least one death is being reported in Ukraine today after the latest round of Russian missile strikes and drone attacks. They came a day after President Biden and Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz announced the U.S. and Germany would be sending tanks to Kyiv. Yuiri Sack is an advisor to Ukraine's defense minister. He spoke to the BBC. It could seem to someone that missile attacks are not connected to tanks. But, you know, if we want the missile terror to stop, we need to receive the weapons which will allow us to defeat the enemy on the battlefield. The sooner we defeat Russia on the battlefield using Western weapons, the sooner we will be able to stop this missile terror and restore peace. The Pentagon will be sending 31 Abrams tanks to Ukraine. Germany is shipping 14 Leopard 2 battle tanks to Kyiv. The U.N. says the production of opium in Myanmar jumped sharply last year. Here's NPR's Michael Sullivan. The February 2021 coup by Myanmar's military has left the country in chaos. 
And says the U.N. Office on Drugs and Crime, that chaos has left farmers in remote and conflict-prone areas little choice but to return to opium as a cash crop. Production had trended downward for the past six years, but the UNODC says it was up 33% last year and expects production to continue to expand. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu focused on housing in her first State of the City address. She said that she wants to get some kind of rent control passed. She also wants to boost the city's affordable housing stock and help more people buy homes. We'll deploy every tool, every strategy, and every resource to create more housing that residents can actually afford. We'll prioritize keeping residents in their homes and closing the racial wealth gap by boosting homeownership. Wu also highlighted her administration's efforts on education, transit, and fighting climate change. This was the first State of the City address held in person in three years because of the pandemic. The number of pedestrians killed by cars in Massachusetts is now above pre-pandemic levels. Preliminary data from the State Department of Transportation shows 100 pedestrians were killed by drivers last year. In the past few years, that number averaged around 70. Brendan Carney is an advocacy director with the group Walk Boston. He says communities need to have more power in finding ways to slow down drivers. There needs to be more flexibility for communities to set context-sensitive speed limits and traffic calming without huge, expensive speed studies. We, we need to be able to set speed limits based on safety, not how fast cars are currently driving on the road. In addition, non-fatal injuries to pedestrians in the state also appear to be rising after a big drop in 2020. Attorney General Andrea Campbell is announcing which bills she's supporting for the upcoming legislative session. They include proposals protecting nursing home residents and enforcing the state's gun laws. The AG's office says the bills fit with the administration's ongoing work. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lyric Stage with Preludes, Dave Malloy's musical fantasia in the mind of pianist Sergei Rachmaninoff. Now through February 5th. Tickets at LyricStage.com. The Bruins will try to extend their six-game winning streak tonight as they visit the Tampa Bay Lightning. The Celtics are back home to host the New York Knicks. Skies will clear later this morning to give us a partly sunny day. Meanwhile, temperatures will fall from the upper 40s to the upper 30s by the time many folks are heading home from work. Tonight, the clouds return and it may fall into the 20s. Tomorrow, we end the week with a mostly sunny day that'll be in the upper 30s. Right now, it's 47 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. 
And I'm Steve Inskeep. No matter where the U.S. economy goes this year, it seems to have had a running start. The economy appeared strong at the end of the year, and data out this morning will measure growth in the fourth quarter. The larger question is where the economy heads next. So NPR's Scott Horsley is here. Hey there, Scott. Good morning. What's the full picture of 2022? The economy shrank in the first six months of last year, but by late summer and early fall, it had begun to rebound. A GDP actually grew at an annual rate above 3% in July, August, and September, and we'll get that fourth quarter reading this morning. All in all, it looks as if the economy managed to stay on its feet last year, despite all the challenges posed by the war in Ukraine and the lingering effects of the pandemic. Consumers managed to keep spending money, even if they had to dip into savings or use credit cards to keep up with rising prices. But forecasters don't expect that to continue indefinitely. Uh, People like Nikki Moore, a married mother of two in Florida, are starting to get a little more cautious in their spending as money gets tight. Everyday stuff is just costing more. We enjoy going to the movies, but like the four of us going to the movies, we're just talking nothing super, not 3D, just the four of us for tickets and concessions. That's like $100 just for a movie night. Last year, Moore and her husband splurged on a 10th anniversary trip to Canada. But looking ahead to her son's upcoming spring break, she's planning to stay closer to home. Maybe she says she'll just take a trip to the local zoo. Now, that will mean a smaller credit card bill, but you multiply that by families across the country, and it also puts a dent in economic growth because, of course, consumer spending is such a big driver of the economy. Well, is there already widespread evidence of that kind of cautious spending? It is starting to show up in some of the data. Retail sales, for example, were down in November and December during the typically busy holiday season. We'll get a more complete picture of consumer spending tomorrow, but there are definitely signs that high prices are starting to have an effect on people's shopping habits. Dan Usher works for a company in Iowa that makes discount cereal. And as overall cereal prices surged almost 16% last year, Usher says that business was pretty good. Last year was very wild. Because of inflation, a lot of consumers decided to switch to private label, which is the store brand, which is what we make. In times of economic hardship, we see pretty significant booms in business. So I'm kind of lucky in that regard. Usher's hoping to get a pay raise later this year. But in the meantime, he's also feeling the weight of rising prices. He had some unexpected expenses last year when both his water heater and his dishwasher conked out. So he's also pinching pennies. Uh, He says he plans to cut back on restaurant meals and maybe travel a little bit less. Scott, I know a lot of people are talking about a recession, but Layla spoke with the economist Mark Zandi on NPR the other day, and he said he thought a recession was not very likely anymore this year because inflation is easing. Maybe a rough year, but not a recession. What do other experts? think. Yeah, a recent survey found a majority of business forecasters think a recession is likely this year, but some analysts like Sandy think we'll limp along, uh, that the economy will slow but not actually go into reverse. We are definitely seeing a slowdown in some parts of the economy, uh, notably manufacturing and housing. Doug Duncan's chief economist for the mortgage giant Fannie Mae, he says the housing market's already in a recession as a result of rising mortgage rates. It will be a difficult year. Something in 24 would be our anticipation that you'd start to see the pickup. Of course, the Federal Reserve has been raising rates aggressively in an effort to cut inflation, and we expect another rate hike next week. And Pierre Scott Horsley, thanks so much. You're welcome. Israel's president says the country's current crisis is a powder keg. The coalition in power, led by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, wants to weaken the judiciary. Protesters say it resembles what leaders have done in Hungary and Poland. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv. 
Protesters chant embarrassment. They chant democracy. Tens of thousands, young and old, in downtown Tel Aviv last weekend, the country's biggest demonstration in years. They're protesting the far-right government's first major initiative to try to redefine the country's checks and balances. It wants control over appointing judges, and it wants the power to uphold the law even if the Supreme Court strikes it down as an infringement on rights and freedoms. Susie Navot of the Israel Democracy Institute. I think this may be the end of a full democracy. Democracy means that you have an effective protection on human rights. So crushing the Israeli democracy, I think that this idea is completely accurate. Power over the judiciary could help Israel's right-wing and religious coalition achieve goals the Supreme Court has previously blocked, like taking over land owned by Palestinians and exempting ultra-Orthodox Jews from the army. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu could also benefit from a weakened judiciary. He's on trial for corruption. In a recent speech, he dismissed the criticism as the media's tsunami of spins. He says his government is not destroying democracy, it's saving democracy by rebalancing Israel's checks and balances. He referenced a Wall Street Journal editorial which said Israel's Supreme Court has too much power. And he said democracy must ensure the minority doesn't take control over the majority. But protesters are worried Israel could follow in the footsteps of two diminished democracies. I do think that Hungary is a real possibility. Poland, Poland. Poland. There's a danger that Israel will become like Hungary or Poland, and we're very concerned. We don't want that to happen. Those are protesters Dan Lahav, his wife Mahayana Haron, and Menachem Katz. When the far right came to office in Hungary in 2010 and in Poland in 2015, they took the same approach to consolidating power. The first step in both cases was the judiciary. Israeli professor Hadass Aron of New York University studies populism in Hungary, Poland, and Israel. She says Israel is taking a page from the same playbook as Hungary and Poland. And now it seems to be an accelerated, all-out process, and it's really alarming. Israel's top legal figures have protested, and now Israeli economic leaders are too. Israel's economy is strong, but two former Israeli central bankers warned that Israel's international credit rating could drop. That's what happened to Poland and Hungary when their judiciaries were weakened. Israel's central bank saw one of its top monetary advisors quit this week in protest, Moshe Chazan. He told NPR a big U.S. investment bank asked him this week, whether to even invest in Israel with the government's plans for the judiciary. And I think it's important to make clear to the government that this reform is going to hurt the Israeli economy and probably pretty soon. Israeli President Isaac Herzog said in a speech he's negotiating with politicians behind the scenes to avert a historic constitutional crisis. But the government has shown no sign of backing down. Neither have protesters. They're planning their fourth consecutive demonstration this coming weekend. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv.
This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up next on Morning Edition, shipping and supply chains across the world are largely back to normal after the pandemic. But that's not the good news for consumers you might expect. And in our next hour, parents, activists and law enforcement say social media sites are enabling drug dealers to sell fentanyl to young Americans. Temperatures will fall throughout the day today from the 50s, where the, well, no, we're in the 40s now, to the upper 30s by late afternoon. Meanwhile, clouds gradually clear for partly sunny skies by afternoon. Tonight, partly cloudy, and we may dip into the 20s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, with a high in the upper 30s. Right now, it's 46 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington. The Art of Burning, a comedy exploring the love, rage, and responsibility that go with marriage and parenting in America. Now through February 12th, HuntingtonTheater.org. Now in business news, Boston-based Corvus Insurance is laying off American workers while also expanding in Europe and the U.K. The Boston Business Journal reports the insurance tech startup reduced its U.S. workforce by 14 percent. In a statement, Corvus's CEO called the layoffs a strategic part of the company's plan to expand its team across the pond. National Grid plans to give $1,000 grants to small businesses in Massachusetts to help them with rising energy costs. The utility says it plans to give grants to 1,000 businesses. A dozen Massachusetts restaurants and chefs were named semifinalists for the 2022 James Beard Awards. The award is often called the Oscars of Food. This year, some lesser-known names made the list of outstanding restaurant semifinalists. That includes the French-Vietnamese Nightshade Noodle Bar in Lynn. Red Rose in Lowell was also nominated for its Cambodian cuisine. It's 7.44. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the George Gund Foundation, working to make Cleveland and Northeast Ohio more globally competitive, livable, sustainable, and just. More information available at gundfdn.org. And from the Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. During much of the pandemic, the cost to fill and transport a shipping container soared. Now shipping rates have dropped by roughly 80% over the past six months. So what's that mean for consumers? Patty Hirsch and Waylon Wong from NPR's daily economic podcast, The Indicator Report. The last big shipping boom was in the early 2000s. This is when ocean shipping carriers were big beneficiaries of the increase in global trade due to China's expansion. Yeah, and that boom was followed by the financial crisis of 2008, of course, and a downturn so severe that many carriers went bust and either folded or were bought out by competitors. But then came COVID. Emily Stoswell is an analyst covering ocean shipping carriers at Zenita. She says the pandemic really turned things around for them. 
we had a huge increase in demand for containerized goods, typically from Asia into the US, because of these stimulus packages, certainly, and because people were at home, right? Demand for containers and the ships to put them on skyrocketed, as did the amount that carriers were able to charge. Some people wonder whether all that consolidation during the Great Recession allowed carriers to collude and push prices higher. At the end of 2019, it cost less than $2,000 to rent a large-sized container to get from China to Los Angeles. 18 months later, carriers were billing 10 times that amount. Emily says the industry had never seen anything like it. Last year in 2021, the shipping companies made more than some of those really big tech companies, and it was just completely unheard of. All of this good news for the carriers was, of course, terrible news for everyone else, like the retailers who were renting these containers, also known in the industry as shippers. And these shippers had a number of options. They could eat the increased costs themselves, or they could find a way around them. Yeah, Amazon, for example, even pre-pandemic began making its own containers and chartering its own ships to cut shipping costs. But of course, most retailers don't have the kind of money or muscle that Amazon has, so they resorted to option three. They passed the costs on to the consumer. Today, however, everything has changed, and retailers who want to ship goods have the upper hand over the carriers. Yeah, today we're importing a lot less of the things that we bought during the pandemic. Throw in the knock-on effects of the war in Ukraine and the resulting economic slowdown, and suddenly there's a lot less demand for containers and the ships that carry them. Shippers have gone from being unable to get their carriers on the end of the phone and say, hey, I need to talk to you, to suddenly all the carriers are calling them and saying, hey, do you have any containers for me that I can move? It's presumably great news for consumers who will uh, no doubt see the benefits of these cost cuts and lower prices of goods very soon, right? Well, we'd be well advised not to hold our breath for lower prices, not least because the carriers are doing everything that they can to keep freight rates up. Emily says they're cancelling sailings and they're scrapping older ships, all in a bid to reduce the overcapacity in the market. Shipping has always been a boom and bust business, but it was the sheer scale of the pandemic boom and the bust that we're in now that took everyone by surprise. And that, of course, includes regulators who allowed all of that consolidation in the industry after the financial crisis, figuring that it benefited the consumer. Emily says that now that the seafoam is settling, those regulators are going to be looking afresh at the shipping industry to ask how it was that prices went so high so quickly during the pandemic and maybe to see how we can try to stop that happening the next time. Waylon Wong. Patty Hirsch, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. There's another hour of Morning Edition coming up, and later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview of the show. Good morning, Tiziana. You've got a long day coming. I do. I, I, I do, Rupa. And in fact, I'm not on the show Radio Boston today. The amazing Deborah Becker is, mm-hmm. um, and she's got a wonderful three segments, segments including on police and mental health. So I really recommend tuning in. But I am here to tell you why I'm not on the show. You're hijacking on a little talk. Okay, <laughs> That's right. So Radio Boston's um, series set in Boston is going to the Coolidge Corner Theater tonight. And mm-hmm. I have a little bit of sound for you. The question is, and this is the only question, who thinks that they can do what you do better than you? The only one who could do what I do is me. A lot of people had to die for me to be me. 
Do you know it? No, I don't. Leonardo DiCaprio, Jack Nicholson, 2006, The Departed, Uh Martin Scorsese, um, uh, directed. I wanted to say decorates. I'm not sure that's the right (laughs) word. So listen, we have been doing a series on films set in or filmed in Boston. We're taking it to the Coolidge tonight. Coolidge.org slash events to get tickets. We will watch the movie at 7 and have a panel to talk about it afterwards. That's awesome. And there are still tickets? There are still tickets. That's surprising. Come join us. All right. Have a good time. Thanks, Rupert. Thanks, Tiziana. And that's Radio Boston today at 11. It's 7.51. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, sourced in New England and focused on combining design with handmade craftsmanship. More about their sustainably crafted furniture at circlefurniture.com. Hi, I'm Lauren Summer. I cover climate change at NPR, so I'm particularly interested in the surge of interest in electric cars. If your next car is going to be electric, be sure to donate your old car to this station. You'll be doing your part to lower your carbon footprint, and we'll turn your old car into more coverage of everything that matters to you. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. One way to see a city's beauty away from its flaws is from above. And that's what Lebanese filmmaker Dania Bader manages to do in her short film, Warsha. It's about a crane operator in Beirut. Bader says the inspiration came to her when she spotted a man on top of a construction crane kneeling. That image of this man praying on top of the gigantic crane really got stuck in my head, and it just unleashed this kind of infatuation I had with crane operators. So she started visiting construction sites, absorbing everything she could about this largely masculine world. The workers were predominantly Syrian, paid very little, living on top of each other in tight spaces. In her film, the Lebanese singer and belly dancer Khansa plays Mohammed, a Syrian construction worker who finds the freedom to explore his gender identity on a crane high above Beirut. Kansa is this incredible artist. He is a singer and a dancer and a belly dancer and an aerialist. And when he performs live, you really forget who you're watching, what gender you're watching, and it doesn't even matter. He goes between the borders of gender, femininity and masculinity so seamlessly. Whatever traditional norms, gender we thought, we as humans placed, they don't really exist. So he was the inspiration of this transformation. And then when we actually had to do it, and when I found out that he's an aerialist, that's really what inspired the idea of like, okay, what if even the cabin is not enough and cannot fit him? He has to explode beyond it, Mm. and he can perform off the tip of the crane for all of Lebanon to see finally. For that, I really wanted to shoot it in real life. But in 2018, I went to shoot a teaser. And when it was time to climb the ladder, the camera operator who had agreed beforehand kind of looked up at the cabin and he looked back at me and he's like, listen, I have kids. And he gave me the camera and he's like, good luck. Wow. Yeah, so I had to myself kind of put the camera in my backpack and climb that ladder. And the minute I got into the ladder, I felt vertigo. It's because you're vulnerable and because you realize that there's nothing really to protect you. And so really that was the day I realized that there's no way we can shoot it in real life. I called the producer who was relieved. So that's when she found this post-production house in France with a floor to ceiling curved LED wall. What we did is we flew a drone in Lebanon from the height of a crane. We got 360 images at different times of day and we sent those to the studio 
who input those in the LED screens. And basically, it was as if we were in Lebanon, even though we were in the south of France. In 16 minutes, you do so much with the shooting of this film. We see the world through the eyes of Mohammed. We see Beirut from the sky and also the noise of it all on the ground. But he doesn't even say a word. How did you do that? How do I know him? And he never spoke. We realized he didn't need any words because he is someone who is kind of erasing himself in the beginning of the film. He is trying to not call attention to himself. He is blending with the rest of the workers. And so really we get to know him through his eyes, through him reacting and through him finally taking agency and taking these steps literally to climb up there. And then you can see his deepest desires when he finally expresses it. And that's how I think you really get to know someone is not what nationality he is, not what social status he is. Those are things that he kind of was born into. But what is his deepest dream? What is his desire? What he would be doing if he weren't dealt those specific cards? That's when you know someone's heart. That's beautiful. So after he has his day in the crane, he is free for that moment. He is outside praying. Hmm. Why did you choose to put the scene there? And also, what does it say about the character who you describe as, you know, really intersectional in the end, right? We tend to want to put people in one box and one label and then call it a day. But people are very intersectional. People are very complex. People can have dreams and can have spirituality and be, you know, creatures of habits and have all of these things at the same time. And this is what felt would be true for this character. And then finally, when that is all done and the workers all end up praying at the end of the day, it's kind of their ritual. Instead of being down there with the rest of them, he kind of dominated this beast this crane that everyone was talking about as a huge threat and a huge fearful thing. And he has this moment of spirituality and of gratitude or guilt or whatever it is that someone wants to place upon it. But he has that moment of silence away from everyone with really just him on top of the crane and where he can have this moment of transcendence himself. I'm also Lebanese and watching Lebanon from the sky. It makes you just remember how incredibly beautiful this country is. Mm. And I'm just curious about your your thoughts about Lebanon making this film there, how difficult it was and what you wanted to depict about the country in your film. I'm actually also Syrian. So both my parents are from Damascus. Yeah. And they moved to Beirut when they were teenagers. And so they grew up there and I grew up there. And mm-hmm. as I grew older, I would really hear some of the horrible things that people could say, which is a shame because these are two countries that at some point were one country and really are pretty much the same. And any problems that are happening between the two are purely political and societal and it's not right. the people's fault. So just for context, we should let listeners know, obviously, like Lebanon, Syria, bordered. There's a war in Syria. There's a huge refugee population in Lebanon, which is a country in the midst of an economic collapse itself. And so it, a lot of it has ended up boiling out as true bigotry mm. for a lot of people who are there in Lebanon working and trying to survive. Exactly. And I knew it with construction workers specifically because it is a job traditionally reserved for Syrians even before the war. Whenever there was a problem politically, people's anger would come up at construction workers. Mm. So this idea of this minivan that I have in the film, that's the minivan that you know is transporting these workers. Yeah, and that scene is sort of where you see that manifest because somebody bangs on the van and swears Mm -hmm. at the workers inside. 
Exactly. So this person, this Muhammad person who's away from home in a new country, trying to work for a better opportunity, is in a situation where he's in a country that doesn't even want him there and that doesn't even see him unless to see him as a nuisance. So really this dream of being able to perform and finally be seen by everyone and celebrated. And, and for me as a Lebanese person, because I do identify as a Lebanese person, having grown up there and having yeah. felt the um, difficulty of, of Lebanon itself, it is a love-hate relationship. And I do feel like you can't really cut the umbilical cord no matter how far you leave <laughs> and how far you go, because there's something deep in our hearts that is calling us back to this place and yeah. so many things that we love that we will never find anywhere else. That's filmmaker Dania Bader. Her film, What a Show, will be released globally on Netflix next week. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at nutter.com. I'm executive editor for News, Dan Mozzie, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Meta is restoring Donald Trump's access to Facebook and Instagram following a two-year suspension imposed after the January 6th insurrection. It's Thursday, January 26th. This is WBMR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu delivers her first State of the City address. In this moment of need, we have an opportunity and an obligation to change how we plan for Boston's future. Also this hour, at a House hearing, accusations that social media sites are helping drug dealers sell fentanyl to young people. Plus, the U.S. has offered Hong Kong residents safe haven for up to 18 months, but now that time is up, leaving thousands in limbo. These are people's lives, and people are in a very vulnerable position when they don't really know where they're headed to next. Temperatures fall to the 30s today while skies clear. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. A series of Russian missile attacks across Ukraine today has left at least one person dead. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports from Kiev. This comes a day after the U.S. and Germany agreed to send battle tanks to Ukraine. Kiev Mayor Vitaly Klitschko says a 55-year-old man died, and at least two more people were wounded when a building in the south of the city was struck by a Russian missile. The missiles also hit the power grid in the Black Sea port city of Odessa. The missile attack sent rush hour commuters scrambling into bomb shelters as air raid alerts went off across the country. The commander-in-chief of the Ukrainian army says its air defenses shot down 47 of the 55 missiles that Russia shot at Ukrainian targets. Ukraine also shot down 24 Iranian-made drones overnight. Bridget Brink, the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, called Russia's attack cruel and a strategic failure. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Kiev. Los Angeles-area authorities have not yet discovered a motive behind last weekend's mass shooting at a ballroom dance venue. Eleven people were killed. 
Vice President Harris visited the dance hall in Monterey Park yesterday to offer support to victims and their families. She urged Americans to call on federal and state lawmakers to pass increased gun safety regulations. Will they do something? That is where we all must speak up and speak to our elected representatives about what we have a right to expect that they will do for the in the interest of the safety, the security, and the well-being of people like those whose lives were ended here. Separately, authorities in Northern California have charged a suspect from Monday's mass shooting in Half Moon Bay with premeditated murder. The alleged gunman is accused of killing seven workers at two farms. A murder trial that's attracted worldwide attention is underway in South Carolina. Jurors heard opening arguments yesterday in the case against Alec Murdoch. He's a once prominent attorney charged with killing his wife and son. South Carolina Public Radio's Victoria Hansen has more. The prosecution says Murdoch murdered his loved ones to gain sympathy and distract from a decades-long embezzlement crime spree that was about to be discovered. They say they have cell phone video putting the 54-year-old at the crime scene and have determined shell casings found near the wife's body match a rifle that Murdoch owned but can no longer be found. Defense attorney Dick Harputlian contends the state doesn't have a case. To you, what you have heard from the attorney general as facts are not. They're his theories, his conjecture. Harputlian says there are no fingerprints, no murder weapons, and no motive. For NPR News, I'm Victoria Hansen in Walterboro, South Carolina. You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu delivered her first State of the City address last night. It's thanks to the people of Boston that I could stand here tonight and say... The state of our city is strong. The focus of Wu's speech was on housing. She believes land already owned by the city can help ease the housing crunch and keep prices in check. We've analyzed every square foot of city-owned property and identified several parcels that could generate thousands of affordable housing units. We also have 150 vacant lots in our neighborhoods ready for housing. Local builders... Work with us to design high-quality, affordable homes that enhance the surrounding neighborhood and we'll give you the land for free. Who added that she soon wants to require all new city construction to be made entirely fossil fuel free. All kids have access to free meals at school this year in Massachusetts, and a local nonprofit wants to keep that permanently. Project Bread is encouraging state lawmakers to pass legislation to make that happen. CEO Aaron McAleer says the goal is to provide school meals without asking for family income details. It allows all kids to be on the same playing field. It destigmatizes the school lunch program. And it allows school cafeteria staff and and school nutrition directors to focus on preparing healthy and appealing meals and not being debt collectors or chasing paperwork. McAleer says 400,000 children benefited from the policy this year. Without changes, it'll expire by the summer break. The state's Health Policy Commission wants the state to continue supporting telehealth policies put in place during the pandemic. Research from the commission shows a majority of people in the state used telehealth at least once in 2020. Researchers recommend continuing to reimburse telehealth providers the same way as in-person providers. The report also suggests expanding access to the service. 
Congressman Jake Auchincloss has a new speechwriter. Yesterday, he delivered what he says is the first speech on the House floor written by an artificial intelligence program. Auchincloss gave the speech while reintroducing his bill that would boost collaboration between the U.S. and Israel on AI research. This is a critical step forward in an era where AI and its implications are taking center stage in public discourse. We must collaborate with international partners like the Israeli government to ensure that the United States maintains a leadership role in AI research and development and responsibly explores the many possibilities evolving technologies provide. That sound is courtesy of Politico. Auchincloss says he wants to bring attention to the technology by using it in discussions about his bill. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solutions simulator, climateinteractive.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. The Celtics host the New York Knicks tonight at the Garden. The Bruins will be in Tampa tonight to play the Lightning. The rain... From earlier this morning seems to be over and clouds are supposed to clear away soon. By this afternoon, we're supposed to have partly sunny skies, but temperatures are going to fall to the upper 40s by the evening commute. Sorry, upper 30s by the evening commute. Partly cloudy overnight with temperatures in the 20s, mostly sunny tomorrow and in the upper 30s. It should be dry for the weekend. It's 46 degrees in Boston at 807. WBUR supporters include the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The next time Donald Trump takes a selfie, he may, if he chooses, post it on Instagram. Yeah, he can also use Facebook if he likes to, you know, comment on your mother-in-law's family news. Meta, the company that owns both platforms, says he may come back. They lifted the suspension imposed two years ago when Trump tried to overturn a Democratic election. We do not know if the former president will come back to those platforms, but NPR's Shannon Bond has been asking why he is allowed. Shannon, good morning. Good morning, Steve. What is Meta's reasoning? Well, essentially, it says time has passed. Things are different. Immediately after the Capitol insurrection, Meta thought the risk that Trump would incite more violence was just too high to let him keep posting. And remember, this wasn't just a move from Facebook and Instagram. He was also kicked off of Twitter and YouTube and Snapchat. It was really this unprecedented and controversial wave. But then Facebook said it would reconsider its ban after two years. And that time is up. The company says it's gone through this process, reviewing its own policies and the larger environment, including how the midterm elections went. And it says it thinks the risk to public safety has, quote, sufficiently receded. Facebook says it believes people should be able to hear what politicians have to say. But it also says Trump does have to follow its rules. And so it's going to put guardrails in place. What kind of guardrails do they mean? Well, because of what happened in large part on January 6th, Facebook has created a new set of policies specifically for public figures in times of civil unrest and violence. And that means if Trump continues to break the rules, he could face up to another two-year suspension. And given just how high profile he is, these previous violations, Meta says they're going to watch very closely what he posts, even content that might be you know, borderline. There might be a lot of people posting opinions about this decision regarding Donald Trump. 
Yes. I mean, this is a decision that, like the decision to suspend him in the first place, is very controversial. You know, he has been, since being kicked off of mainstream social media, he's been posting on his own website, Truth Social, false claims of election fraud, QAnon conspiracy theories. And so Democratic politicians and civil rights organizations and advocacy groups are pointing that and saying it shows he is still a big risk to public safety. Some also say this sets a dangerous precedent around the world. You know, there are far-right authoritarian leaders who look to Trump and how he uses social media as a model. Trump, meanwhile, is taking a victory lap on Truth Social. He says this should never happen again to a sitting president. But the next question is, will he actually use Facebook again once he gets his account back in the coming weeks? You know, he was allowed back on Twitter back in November, but he has not been posting there. He's stuck to Truth Social. Well, help me understand in this changing social media landscape, is it a powerful tool for a politician to be on Facebook at this point or to be denied it for that matter? Yeah, I mean, Facebook, it does not probably have the clout it did when Trump was banned. You know, things have changed. But what it's very important for is fundraising. And right, Trump is running for president again in 2024. That is going to be a really critical channel. In fact, his campaign formally petitioned Facebook to let him back on. You know, and I think no matter how much he talks up Truth Social, which he helped create and financially backs, there he has just a fraction of the reach he has on Facebook and Twitter. So it's hard to imagine there wouldn't be a very strong pull for him to return to these bigger platforms. NPR's Shannon Bond has enormous reach here on this platform. Shannon, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Not only is former President Trump returning to Facebook and Instagram, he's also returning to the campaign trail for the first time since announcing his re-election bid in November. Trump will speak to New Hampshire Republicans on Saturday before going to South Carolina. Meanwhile, the first primary is a little more than a year away, and no Republican has come forward to challenge Trump. Zach Montalero is a reporter at Politico, and he looked into why. Good morning, Zach. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So what did you find out? Why doesn't Trump have any competition yet? Well, it's really a two-pronged problem for Republicans in the race. One is Trump himself, you know, kind of a reverse of 2016. Candidates think now and their advisors think now that if they get in the race, a one-on-one match with Trump would be a disadvantage, would be bad for them, that they would be attacked pretty ruthlessly by the former president. That if the attention is on a one versus one race, uh, it would end up poorly for them. Hmm. And then the other part is that there's some level of voter fatigue. We have had uh, a busy uh, six years, I would say, since the 2016 election. And and there's some thinking that voters just at some point aren't ready for another presidential campaign. Yeah. But at some point, if they want to challenge him, they have to get in the race. Are they coordinating so it's not a one-on-one? Right. You know, we're not that far away from the first election. It feels like it. But, you know, a year is not that long in political time, especially to run a national campaign. So there has been at least some background chatter. Okay, you get in first and we'll we'll follow along. You know, the likely situation here is that the one candidate will make the plunge, will get in the race to face off against Trump 1v1, and will likely not share that stage for very long. But we're kind of in a standoff right now for somebody to make that first move. Mm. So is that person the sacrifice? (laughs) I'm not sure if sacrifice is the right term, but they'll certainly have a couple of weeks of uh, unique campaigning going up against the former president when they're the sole target will have its benefits. Of course, you know, fundraising, it's easier to fundraise when you're one of two as opposed to one of seven or eight or 10 or 12. But they will also have to face down Trump's uh, wrath. We've seen the former president attack 
uh, even folks he thinks could be candidates, thinking about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He hasn't announced a campaign yet, but Trump has already started to attack him, thinking that he might run against him. Right. So any indication of who might be the first? You know, we've heard some rumblings about uh, U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, who served during uh, Trump's tenure in the White House, potentially making a move soon. Uh, but beyond that, a lot of candidates have shown they're pretty they're pretty comfortable waiting. Uh, Ron DeSantis is one of the only candidates spending money on important digital ads, spending any meaningful amount of money. Uh, Mike Pompeo, the former Secretary of State under the former President Trump, just said yesterday on TV, you know, he'll make a decision in a couple of months. So at this point, no one seems super eager to be the first one in the race. Are they waiting it out a little bit, hoping that maybe Trump will take himself out between his legal issues and moves like dining with an anti-Semite? That's certainly part of it, is that the former president hasn't had a great run of it since launching his campaign. He really hasn't even been campaigning. Now, this weekend could be the change to that. As you mentioned earlier, he's actually going to the earlier states. He's going to be back on Facebook. But since Trump launched his campaign, he had he hasn't actually fundraised all that much online. He hasn't actually traveled. So they're pretty content to let Trump do what he wants to do on his own. In the few seconds we have left, what about the anti-Trump candidates that there are rumblings about? Former Representative Liz Cheney, Larry Hogan, the former Maryland governor, are they going to declare? You know, they're up in the air, too. We haven't seen among many of these candidates, they are the few that haven't actually made any sort of those serious steps yet other than that background move like hiring staffs. Mm. Zach Montalero from Politico, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Drug dealers have been using social media sites, especially Snapchat, to market fentanyl to children. Some lawmakers want tech companies held liable for that. Here's NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann. Three years ago, Amy Neville went to her son Alex's bedroom and found him lying dead on a beanbag chair. That amazing child who could do anything that he set his mind to was gone. Alex was 14. He overdosed on fentanyl. Neville told her family's story to a House panel Wednesday in Washington. She described how Alex fell into drug use using Snapchat. It was on Snapchat that Alex was able to visit with dealers and other users. It was on Snapchat that he set up a deal to get pills. It was on Snapchat that he made plans to have the dealer drive up to our house so Alex could sneak out for a couple of minutes one night and get anything he wanted. The dealer who sold a fentanyl-laced pill to Alex was never caught or prosecuted. Snap, the company that makes Snapchat, hasn't acknowledged any role in his death. Neville testified that social media platforms aren't being held accountable for putting kids like her son at risk. She and other witnesses called for changes to a part of federal law known as Section 230. Section 230 shields social media companies from most civil lawsuits linked to content on their platforms that's created by users, including users dealing drugs. The question isn't whether tech is completely responsible for illicit drug sales. They aren't. That's Congressman Kelly Armstrong, a Republican from North Dakota. The question is what duty we should impose on those platforms to mitigate illegal illicit drug sales. The answer can no longer be 230's near total immunity. Critics at this hearing said immunity from civil lawsuits has allowed social media companies to focus on the profits that come from attracting and engaging young people rather than focusing on safety. Laura Marquez-Garrett is an attorney with a group called the Social Media Victims Law Center that's suing SNAP. We have a client who literally drove to SNAP's physical address because she was trying to report a dealer who killed her son. She could not get through to anyone. She could not find a 1-800 number. 
Witnesses also testified that tech companies are slow to cooperate with law enforcement. Much of the criticism fell on Snap, and the company acknowledges drug dealers are targeting kids on their platform for one reason. This is where young people are, right? This is where teens come to communicate and to connect with their friends. Jennifer Stout is SNAP's vice president for global public policy. She says the company is working to identify and shut down accounts opened by drug dealers and getting better at cooperating with law enforcement. In recent months, we have only increased our investments here to help us strengthen our ability to fulfill law enforcement requests for information. We prioritize these based on urgency. We respond to emergency disclosure requests, often in less than 30 minutes. But fentanyl deaths are rising fast among teenagers and children, and most experts agree social media platforms have made fentanyl-laced pills easily accessible to kids. Wednesday's hearing shows Congress and tech companies face intense pressure to make children safer when they go online. Brian Mann, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, reaction to Pope Francis's comments to the Associated Press about homosexuality. It's 819. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. Over 40 million adults in America suffer from an anxiety disorder. But anxiety also has an evolutionary purpose. Because it's preparing us to handle this uncertain future where something bad or good could happen, anxiety primes us to focus more, to persist, to innovate. You know, to seek support, to be proactive. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Some high winds will clear the clouds out, and by afternoon we'll have a partly sunny day. Temperatures are going to fall from where they are now, the mid-40s to the upper 30s by about 5 p.m. Tonight, partly cloudy and low in the upper 20s. Tomorrow, a mostly sunny Friday with a high only in the upper 30s. It's 45 degrees in Boston at 820. Let us fly away to the rock candy mountains, just you and I. That is the voice of singer Carol Sloan. She died Monday. Sloan was born in Providence and lived in Stoneham. She made her career singing jazz, swing, and big band, recording more than two dozen albums. Her most recent one was released last April. Carol Sloan was 85. And quit running through my mind. After we've reached the end of the world, stand at the edge of time. We'll quickly sail away on an ocean of love. On the rippling through the Support for NPR comes from this station and from the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia. For 30 years, committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. From the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, for more than 95 years, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. 
more at mott.org. From Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people sleep well so they can live well. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. Pope Francis says that homosexuality is a sin, but it is not a crime. And then he went further, saying the church must work against unjust laws that make it a crime. He made the comments in an interview with the Associated Press just before an upcoming trip to South Sudan, one of at least 67 countries with anti-gay laws. Joining us now to discuss the significance of these statements is Juan Carlos Cruz. He first met Pope Francis in 2018 when he and other survivors of sexual abuse by a Chilean priest were invited to the Vatican. Cruz is openly gay and now an advisor to the Pope on LGBTQ plus issues. He's also a member of the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Hi, Leila. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I would love to just hear your initial reaction to hearing the Pope say this publicly. You know, it's been an incredible day yeah. um, with, with his statement, uh, something that no pope has ever done in history. And in a moment where um, the LGBT community all over the world needs it because it's being attacked, it's condemned, there's laws that criminalize it, and so it's, it's a great day. Do you think it could actually have impact on changing some of these laws? As we pointed out, there are these laws in dozens of countries. Sometimes mm-hmm. they carry the death penalty. It, exactly. It, it, it's horrifying. But the fact that um, Pope Francis, a, a leader that is respected morally around the world, yeah. does say this, it's time for for civil authorities, for bishops, cardinals, as he says, to change their heart and start uh, speaking up as well. Yeah. Did it surprise you as somebody who knows the Pope and speaks to him about these issues that he said this publicly? No, you know, it doesn't surprise me from Pope Francis. He's he's a man that... that is open to everybody mm. who who holds the dignity of the person in in the highest standards, and the LGBT community is is very in his heart. I I would not say this if I didn't know it. I I know this for a fact, and and that makes me very happy. Yeah, but this doesn't shift the church's views on homosexuality, right? I mean, it still teaches that it's intrinsically disordered, uh, yeah. homosexual acts. Yeah, those words are, are shameful, actually. But but if you if you see Pope, the Pope highlights that the LGBTQ plus community is not sinful and criminal. Mm. Uh, and he says harming one's neighbor is, is most certainly both. Uh, so it's the bedrock of Catholic teaching. Um, he, he shifts this... Um, you know, wording, like you said it, Leila, but he highlights how important it is that it's more sinful, you know, having things against your neighbor or being uncharitable or or criminal towards the gay community. That that's that's sinful. Now, your relationship with the Pope started out pretty complicated, right? At first yes. he questioned your credibility. You were, as you put it, mortal enemies, I think is yes. that what you said. But that's yes. changed and now you're his advisor on these issues. How yeah. has the Pope's views evolved since you came to know him? You know, the Pope um that I knew in uh, that I saw in twenty seventeen versus mm. the Pope that that I met and and after a few meetings in 2018, it's a 180 degree difference, right? Um, it, it's surprising, you know, we, we normally say 
uh, older people, um, you know, it's hard to change their views or, or, or change. And a man in his 80s, you know, he, he's, he's not going to change. This man does change and does acknowledge when he has made a mistake and he said it publicly. And I admire that in him. Um, I mean, there's a lot, a lot still to do in terms of abuse in the church. By no means we're done. But mm. and also in the LGBT issue, but he's taken great steps and, and they're sincere and that I appreciate. Juan Carlos Cruz is a member of the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors and an advisor to the Pope on LGBTQ plus issues. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Leila. I appreciate uh, you guys calling me. Thank you. A murder trial in South Carolina is now underway. A fourth-generation prosecutor is accused of killing his wife and son. The story of Alec Murdoch inspired numerous documentaries and podcasts before this trial. Here's South Carolina Public Radio's Victoria Hansen. Alec Murdoch called 911 breathless and sobbing, saying he'd found the bodies of his loved ones on the family's rural property in 2021. But prosecutor Creighton Waters says Murdoch killed them using a shotgun on his 22-year-old son and a rifle on his wife. Pow, pow, two shots, abdomen and the leg, and took her down. And after that, there were additional shots. Waters says shell casings found around Maggie's body matched those of a rifle Murdoch once owned, but can no longer be found. And he says cell phone video puts the 54-year-old at the crime scene, despite his claims otherwise. As for a motive, Waters says Murdoch planned the murders to gain sympathy and distract from a decades-long financial embezzlement crime spree that was about to be exposed. Listen to that gathering storm that all came to a head on June 7, 2021, the day the evidence will show he killed Maggie and Paul. But defense attorney Dick Harputlian says there's no motive, no evidence, no bloody clothing, fingerprints, murder weapons, and... Was there enough time to kill Paul and then find the AR and then ambush Maggie? Harputlian says he has video, too, showing Murdoch and his son spending time together about an hour before the murders. That he executes him in a brutal fashion, not believable. The lead-up to this trial has captivated people here and around the world. Now jurors will hear testimony to determine what they believe happened on that June night. For NPR News, I'm Victoria Hansen in Walterboro, South Carolina. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, the latest on the federal antitrust case targeting Google's digital advertising business. And many Hong Kong residents offered safe haven in the U.S. are now in immigration limbo. It's 829. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Montgomery Carroll Group, guiding buyers and sellers in Brookline and Newton. More about Matt Montgomery, Lauren Carroll, and their team at mcgroupcompass.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Authorities in Southern California say investigators still haven't found a motive for the shooting at a dance studio in Monterey Park that left 11 people dead. They have not been able to establish a connection between the suspect and any of the victims thus far. That's Los Angeles County Sheriff Robert Luna. The 72-year-old gunman took his own life after the attack five days ago. Meta says it's allowing former President Donald Trump back on Facebook and Instagram. Trump was suspended from the platforms two years ago over his posts about the January 6th attack at the U.S. Capitol. NPR's Shannon Bond says new policies are in place. Because of what happened in large part on January 6th, Facebook has created a new set of policies specifically for public figures in times of civil unrest and violence. And that means if Trump continues to break the rules, he could face up to another two-year suspension. And given just how high profile he is, these previous violations, Meta says they're going to watch very closely what he posts, even content that might be, you know, borderline. Trump is scheduled to hold campaign rallies in New Hampshire and South Carolina this weekend as he seeks to win the White House in 2024. IBM says it's laying off 3,900 employees. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is introducing a bill to repeal the Hyde Amendment. That amendment was passed in 1977. It bans the use of federal Medicaid funds for abortion in nearly all cases. Massachusetts is one of 16 states that use their own funds to pay for abortion under Medicaid. Presley notes that patients in need in other states have come here seeking abortion care. TikTok, hide, amendment, your days are numbered. For far too long, you've prevented millions from access and safe and legal abortion care, especially our most vulnerable, Black, brown, low income. And your ability to access health care uh, should not depend on whether or not you're on Medicaid. In 2021, President Biden filed the first budget proposal without the Hyde Amendment. Some Massachusetts lawmakers want to explore new ways to reduce traffic congestion in downtown Boston. That idea is being backed by the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce. A proposed commission would look at several possibilities, including the idea of making drivers pay tolls in busy parts of the city. That's called congestion pricing. Transportation officials tell the Boston Herald those tolls have worked in cities like London and Singapore, but there aren't any examples of it working in the U.S. The federal government has denied a request from environmental groups to immediately expand speed restrictions for ships off the East Coast. Those restrictions were designed to protect endangered North Atlantic right whales. Ship strikes and entanglements in fishing gear are two major threats to the animals. Regina Esmedes Sylvia is with the nonprofit Whale and Dolphin Conservation. She says the future of the species is the primary issue. Regardless of what's happening with entanglement, these are two major threats. It's not one versus the other. It's, hey, the species has got a bunch of stuff weighing on it, and they all have to be managed. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration says it's considering expanding so-called slow zones, but it isn't prepared to implement any plans now. 
A new dumpling factory and cafe opens to the public today in South Boston. As WBUR's Andrea Shea reports, it's a comeback for May May, a beloved Brookline restaurant that closed because of the pandemic. May May co-founder and James Beard Award winner Irene Lee started selling her restaurant's dumplings at farmers markets to keep going through the pandemic. Now Lee says her devoted team is cranking out mass quantities in a South Boston space where customers can watch them being made. We said dumplings aren't going anywhere, they're going everywhere. (laughs) And so I just want people to eat more dumplings. Just embracing the cooking process, knowing where your food comes from, all of those things I think are a attached to the level of dumpling enthusiasm that we're hoping to inspire. Their goal is to get May May's dumplings on grocery store shelves from coast to coast. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. It's 8:34. We're funded by you our listeners and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. The Bruins will visit the Tampa Bay Lightning tonight. The Celtics will try to snap their two-game losing streak at home tonight as they play the New York Knicks. And in your forecast, skies will clear later this morning to give us a partly sunny day. Meanwhile, temperatures will fall throughout the day to the upper 30s. Tonight, the clouds return and it may fall into the 20s. Tomorrow, we end the week with a mostly sunny day that'll be in the upper 30s. Right now, it's 44 degrees in in Boston at 835. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. DataIQ.com. And from Procter and Gamble, maker of Z-Quill Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com and from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Folded. And I'm Steve Inskeek. Good morning. If you do a Google search online and enter the terms Google antitrust lawsuit, you will find a lot of news stories because Google has been sued again. The Department of Justice and eight states filed an antitrust lawsuit against the search company, accusing it of running an online advertising monopoly. Let's discuss this with Luigi Zengalis, professor of finance at the University of Chicago. Good morning, sir. Good morning. So when I saw this news, my first thought was, isn't Google already being sued uh, by the federal government? And I realized, in fact, they are, but it's different. So how is this antitrust suit different from the other antitrust lawsuit? Google does a lot of things, and most of us uh, knows it uh, for the searches, uh, for the Google Maps, for YouTube. But in fact, Google runs the largest uh, market in the world, the market for ads. Every year, five trillion ads are exchanged in this market. Wow. In this market, uh, uh, Google represents the buyers, which are the advertisers, represents the sellers, which are the publisher, and runs the auction. So does everything. Oh, okay. So the previous lawsuit, I think, was about uh, Google search that you mentioned. This time it's about that monumental advertising market. You just said five trillion, which is an eye-popping number of ads. But are they a monopoly, really? First of all, uh, if we look at the traditional measure of market share, uh, absolutely, because they control like 90% uh, of some of the segment of this market. But let's look at the more substantive things, which are prices. In this transaction, Google get 30 cents on the dollar. 
Now, if you make a comparison with the stock market where uh, we have more competition, intermediaries gets basis points or fraction of a percentage points. And here, Google is able to get 30%. Now, how does it do that? Because it's able to aggregate both the buyers and the seller and to manipulate the market. One of the things that uh, emerged in the complaints is that uh, Google is able to intervene in the prices and favor either Paul or Peter, depending on the convenience, in the way it wants. You said a really interesting thing here, because I think it's hard for a lot of us to follow the various ways that Google may uh, allegedly manipulate the advertising market. But you're telling me they are able to command so large a cut for themselves just for passing an ad along, 30% of the value, 30% of each dollar, that almost by definition they dominate the market. Is that what you're telling me? Yes, it's very hard to explain why they are able to retain so much in a competitive market. And in fact, what is interesting and what I read in the complaint is that even the Google executives themselves uh, recognize that if the market was more competitive, they would lose some of that cut. Is there a case to be made that there are other big companies that sell ads, uh, Facebook comes to mind, and that the market is constantly changing and evolving, and maybe Google has a temporary monopoly in one market segment or another, but it's really not that important? Is there that case can, to be made? Look, you can always make a case that eventually competition uh, will uh, come in, technology will change, and et cetera. The question is, how long is eventually? AT&T had a monopoly on phones, and eventually, they lost it. First of all, it took the antitrust to do it, but eventually yeah. you had a new technology, et cetera. The question is how long will it take and how much consumers are hurt in the meantime? What is the remedy here? What would the Justice Department have Google do? I think that uh, one uh, simple uh, idea is to force a separation between uh, the role of, for example, representing the buyers, representing the seller and running the auction. Another is to get uh, much more transparency on the prices. And most of the stuff that goes on on Google Ad Exchange would be illegal in the stock market. It's just that we don't know because there is no transparency. Do you think in the end Google should just be making a lot less money? I don't think that uh, the purpose here is uh, to penalize Google. If Google makes money by inventing new products, I'm very happy that they make the money. The, the point is that here, they're not inventing new products. They are uh, taking advantage of a monopoly position, and that needs to end. Do you, would you expect it's going to take years, though, for this to reach a resolution? Yes, uh, but uh, I think the remedy here is part the trial. So the exposure of facts in the trial will be crucial to reduce this monopoly. Luigi Zingales is at the University of Chicago and host of the podcast Capital Isn't. Thank you so much. My pleasure. In 2021, President Biden offered people from Hong Kong already in the U.S. temporary asylum. That meant they didn't have to go back to the Chinese territory where some say they might face political persecution. But that reprieve is up, and the U.S. is waiting until the last minute to extend this safe haven status. As NPR's Emily Fang reports, that's left thousands of the Hong Kongers in limbo. Cam Koo was a student activist in Hong Kong, and when that became unsafe, he came to the U.S. nearly 18 months ago to work as a lawyer under something called the Deferred Enforced Departure, or DED, that gave anyone with a Hong Kong ID or passport 18 months to live and work in the U.S., but not a path to citizenship. 
it has provided me an alternative pathways where I can still engage in Hong Kong's politics and at the same time also actually work in a field that has always been my dream. Giving politically outspoken Hong Kongers safe haven was a way for the U.S. to push back on Beijing's now complete political control over Hong Kong. But now that DED expires February 5th, and Ku's job, his life in the U.S., and maybe his freedom could go with it, he fears. If they don't renew it, I can't work at all. They would just terminate me on the day if I don't get the renewal. He's among many Hong Kong activists who've been worried lately. Anna Kwok is executive director for the Hong Kong Democracy Council, a Washington advocacy group lobbying for a DED extension. She's critical the U.S. government has not decided yet on a DED extension, even as its last days tick down. These are people's lives and people are in a very vulnerable position when they don't really know where they're headed to next. More than 3,000 Hong Kongers could be impacted if their status isn't renewed on time, especially political activists. One of them is Hoon Lim in Washington, D.C. She left Hong Kong after campaigning for an opposition politician who came under persecution. And now in the U.S., Lam's continued her pro-democracy political activism. I got very anxious just talking about it and very stressful because that isn't a path that I envisioned for myself. So I think prison would be a very likely option if I were to return to Hong Kong. With every DED, Lam gets another 18 months of freedom, she says. But there is never a guarantee of that. Emily Fang, NPR News. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu outlined initiatives on climate, rent control, and development in her first State of the City address. Clouds gradually clear this morning for partly sunny skies by afternoon. Temperatures are falling rapidly. They'll reach the 30s by late afternoon. Partly cloudy, and we may dip into the 20s tonight. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with a high in the upper 30s. Right now, it's 44 degrees in Boston at 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Now in business news, Boston-based Wayfair will close its customer call center in Pittsfield just three years after it opened. The closure follows last week's announcement that the online furniture store is cutting 10 percent of its workforce. The Berkshire Eagle reports the 40 employees who work at the call center will keep their jobs, but will join Wayfair's virtual customer service team. The former Center Point Life Sciences campus in Waltham sold to a California real estate investment company for nearly $600 million. According to the Boston Business Journal, the sale is one of the largest commercial property transactions in the greater Boston area in the past year. Westboro-based Miyak Orthopedics is getting $40 million to roll out a device meant to help treat knee injuries. The company uses an implant to heal ACL tears instead of more invasive reconstructive surgeries. The device received FDA approval in 2020. It's 845. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource, a proud sponsor of Mass Save. Energy-saving solutions for your business, no matter the size. Information about tools to reduce your carbon footprint, lessen environmental impact, and custom recommendations for reaching your sustainability goals at Eversource.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is promising to fundamentally transform how housing is built in Boston. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, the mayor used her first State of the City speech last night to announce several new housing and climate policies. About 3,000 people were in the audience at the new MGM Music Hall. They were excited for Wu's speech. They gave her an ovation before she even started. They kept cheering as Wu dove into a list of new policy proposals. She said she would order all new city construction and major renovations be entirely fossil fuel free. She also outlined a plan to begin dismantling the powerful Boston Planning and Development Agency, one of her key campaign promises. Since 2016, it's been called the Boston Planning and Development Agency, or BPDA. But the focus on building buildings rather than community has held back the talent of its staff and deepened disparities in our city. She said many of the BPDA's functions would be transferred to a new city planning and design department. Wu said Boston's affordable housing crunch demands urgent action. Her plan includes making 150 city-owned vacant lots available to developers. Local builders, work with us to design high-quality, affordable homes that enhance the surrounding neighborhood, and we'll give you the land for free. We'll provide increased mortgage assistance so our residents can afford to buy these homes. And she reiterated a pledge to submit a home rule petition to bring a form of rent control back to Boston. But Wu needs support from city councilors and state legislators to carve out an exception to the state's rent control ban. Many of the people she has to convince were in the audience last night, and there was some skepticism. I am totally okay with, like, disagreeing with someone and loving you at the same time. That's city councilor Tanya Fernandez-Anderson. She says Wu's plan to cap annual rent increases at 10 percent doesn't go far enough. It wasn't totally what the advocates in the community have been fighting for, but I think it's a work in progress. So let's get to it. We'll get to the chamber. We'll figure it out. Right. We'll iron out the kinks and hopefully we'll get the best rent control out. But across the room, State Senator Liz Miranda said she supports the idea. She pledged to fight for rent control in the legislature. You know, someone might be my constituent today and be kicked out of their city and be a Worcester resident tomorrow. And so the issue of housing is not one sort of like a gateway city problem. It's not just a city of Boston problem. It is a state of Massachusetts problem. Wu's plans on rent control, development and climate will all face scrutiny over the coming months. But at least for one night at the MGM Music Hall, people were ready to listen and celebrate this history-making mayor's first year in office. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the Marketplace Morning Report previews the latest snapshot on the housing market 
out later this morning. And coming up at noon today, it's here and now, and Jane Clayson is on is here in studio to tell us what they're going to be talking about today. Hi, Jane. Hi, Very hi. good to see you. Good to see you too, Rupa. We're starting with Pope Francis today and his words about homosexuality. It's not a crime, he says, but it is a sin. We'll look at what this means, what his words mean for laws criminalizing homosexuality in the United States and around the world. We'll go to Memphis, of course, after the brutal beating of Tyree Nichols, after that traffic stop, he later died, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll check in there with civil rights leaders, the Memphis police chief now saying this is a failing of basic humanity. Mm. Um, We'll look at the defamation case against Fox News, how extreme weather is impacting farm workers, and our resident chef, Kathy Gunst, is out in California. She's eyeing all the citrus in farmers' markets and in people's yards. We don't get that here. No, (laughs) no, I wish. Lemons, grapefruits, oranges. She's got recipes that are both sweet and savory, a citrus obsession today (laughs) on Here and Now. That's nice to end on. Okay. Well, thank you. And again, nice to see you. Thank you. You as well. That's Here and Now. Today at noon, it's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Welch and Forbes. Over 100 years of experience providing comprehensive estate settlement services for individuals. WelchForbes.com. In my job, balance is really important. I'm Aisha Roscoe, host of Weekend Edition. So when I look at my old minivan, I'm balancing on the one hand, new car payment, and on the other, driving around for another year with that smell of spilled milk in the back. Whenever the balance tips for your old car, give it a chance to do one more good deed. Donate it to this station and turn it into the programs we all love. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Gradual clearing this morning will give us partly sunny skies by afternoon. Temperatures will fall to the upper 30s by late afternoon. Tonight, partly cloudy, and we may dip into the 20s. Right now, it's 44 degrees in Boston at 851. In a few minutes, new information on the ethics of drones fitted with onboard weapons that could be used by police. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, where researchers seek new breakthroughs inspired by the work of previous Dana-Farber scientists. DanaFarber.org slash stories. I'm David Brancaccio. First, we just got the government's headline reading for economic growth. Despite higher interest rates, the economy grew at an annual rate of 2.9% October through December, that quarter. That is more than expected and puts growth for all of last year at 2.1%. Now that is much cooler than the year before. Gross domestic product measures money changing hands and should not be confused with measures of well-being. Stock index futures are up plus six-tenths of a percent for the S&P, up two-tenths percent for the Dow, and NASDAQ futures are up 1.1%. The U.S. Department of Transportation is now investigating Southwest Airlines for its meltdown over the holidays. It's about whether Southwest had overscheduled going into the crush. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer has details. The Transportation Department says at one point between Christmas and New Year's, Southwest canceled almost two-thirds of its flights. DOT says those disruptions were not due to winter weather. It's looking into whether the airline scheduled more flights than it could handle. The department says that would be an unfair and deceptive practice. Southwest says it's cooperating with the investigation, and there were problems with the software it uses to schedule crews after there have been flight disruptions. Southwest says its budget more than a billion dollars for investments, upgrades, and maintenance of its IT systems. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser for Marketplace. Later today, we'll hear about home sales in December with a recession in the housing market underway. Marketplace's Mitchell Hartman 
has more on the possibility for a turn in the market. Soaring interest rates last year really put a crimp in housing. Potential buyers pulled out of the market as the rate on the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage more than doubled to peak around 7% back in November. But mortgage rates have now fallen back to just above 6%. Economist Robert Dietz at the National Association of Home Builders expects rates to fall further this year, which he says will boost confidence among builders. Meanwhile, home prices have plateaued and are now declining in some markets. That is going to price in a lot of home buyers, particularly frustrated first-time buyers. Persistent strong demand for housing convinces analyst Jay Hatfield at Infrastructure Capital Advisors that the current economic slowdown won't be very severe. We're pretty bullish that the U.S. will stay out of recession, primarily because we have a resilient housing sector and a shortage of housing. The National Association of Home Builders estimates the U.S. is short 1.5 million new homes to meet current demand. I'm Mitchell Hartman for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Paychex, where HR, insurance, benefits, and payroll integrate into one platform. Whether two or 2,000 employees, Paychex can help make HR simple for businesses and employees. And by Affinity, helping investors navigate the relationship economy with the CRM built for private capital markets. Affinity.co slash marketplace. The ethics of putting weapons on small, maneuverable flying objects to subdue dangerous people with what's designed to be non-lethal force, and then to try to use these taser drones to protect schools. A law enforcement tech company called Axon a few years ago asked its own ethics board on artificial intelligence for input. The board spent a year studying a prototype program and ended up deciding that putting tasers on drones was not a good idea. Some weeks later, after the mass shooting at the school in Uvalde, Texas, Axon decided to keep the idea on the table in part to protect police officers who with normal tasers have to get quite close to targets. With a big policing technology convention, TaserCon, going on in Las Vegas this week, we checked in with investigative journalist Dina Temple-Raston, host of the Technology and Security podcast called Click Here. She obtained new details about the original ethics reports. Hey, Dina. Hey there, David. You got a hold of a document, an internal report from this Axon Ethics Board. Why was this board so concerned and this report so concerned about this Taser drone operation? What the root of it is they weren't sure that officers could be trusted to use a taser drone properly. There are 18,000 law enforcement agencies in the U.S., and the concern was that there wouldn't be enough of a check. Here's the former chair of that ethics board, Barry Friedman. There was a group of us that were just concerned that as well as we could design this, and if designed well, as much as we believed it was something the world could benefit from, we couldn't trust the overall variance in policing to make this a commercially viable product. Now, I should say here that Friedman is also the faculty director of the policing project at NYU Law, so he's studied this a lot. And he said that the board just ended up thinking that the entire concept of weaponized drones was a little too dystopian. And this idea for flying tasers for schools has been circling around for a bit. It has. I mean, this is something that Axon CEO uh, Rick Smith first brought up in the aftermath of Uvalde. And we spoke to another AI ethics board member about this. She's a community organizer in Chicago, and her name is Nicole Jordan McBride. And she said that when you looked at it closely, even the idea of putting drones in schools just didn't make sense. Here's what she said. 
And so now we're talking about literally putting a drone in every single school across America. I thought about the amount of money that would be, you know, I thought about the over surveillance of that. And the surveillance question is something that kept coming up as the board talked about this as well. These drones would require a host of cameras and other surveillance tools that a lot of people say don't belong in schools and are an incredible invasion of privacy. Now, the idea seemed to fall out of the headlines last year. Do you have any indication it might be gaining traction here in 2023? Well, Axon hosted a conference in Las Vegas this week. They call it something called TaserCon. And the CEO helped lead a presentation on drones during this conference. And he said that Axon had partnered with a number of drone companies. And then separately, they've announced that they've been engaging teachers and school administrators on the idea. Now, we should mention that Axon didn't agree to an interview with us, but they did say in a statement that school drones is still just an idea and not a product yet, and that it's a ways away. But based on the company's announcements and public posture, the idea of Taser drones certainly isn't dead yet. All right. Taser drones for schools. Dina Temple-Raston is host of Click Here, a podcast about the world of cybersecurity and intelligence. Dina, thanks so much. Thank you. Ten-year interest rate is up. Given the strong GDP report, 3.49% for the 10-year. Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. Temperatures will fall throughout the day. By late afternoon, we'll be in the upper 30s. Meanwhile, this morning's cloudy skies clear away and will have a partly sunny afternoon. Tonight, partly overcast with lows in the 20s. Mostly sunny to end the week tomorrow with a high in the upper 30s. Right now, it's 44 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Best Barry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bestberry.com. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBURFM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.